Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh here with an all-star cast for a topic that will never not be hot, folks. We're going to talk all about security today. No one is safe, so be prepared for all contingencies. We've got some uh, rock star veterans on the call today. We've got Andy Stone from Pure Storage and Angel Rivera from CICL, I believe, uh, is the company. Circle CI. There we go. <laughs> Circle CI. And uh, we're going to talk all about this ongoing cat and mouse game, which gets more interesting by the day, quite frankly. Uh, I'm always impressed by people who have the role of a CISO, a chief information security officer. Those folks have uh, nerves of steel, I have to say. Andy was talking about some of his adventures and past lives before the show here. And uh, Angel has been around as well. So Angel Rivera has seen lots of things going on in the in the world of developers, and uh, I just went to KubeCon a few weeks ago, which is a really fascinating place because KubeCon refers to Kubernetes, which uh, some of you regular listeners know is a project that came out of Google. Uh, it was a really interesting project designed to sit on top of Docker and help the containerization of functionality. What that means to the average layperson is sort of a de facto operating system for the cloud. So containers, as they're called, contain a little system process, basically instructions for how to do something. They have to be attached to persistent storage somewhere, and then they do their little job and and go away, which is a much different way of getting business done than the old sort of monolithic SAP, ERP, or ECC-type equation, where you have these huge applications that are supposed to do everything for the business, or at least many things for the business. And they're pretty complex, and they're pretty heavy-duty in terms of throughput and power and and how much uh, time and energy it takes to deploy them and to run them and so forth. And Kubernetes really flipped the script on all that. Uh, I almost view it as a sort of SOA 2.0. We had service-oriented architecture 15, 20 years ago, which was, again, a way to sort of decouple the traditional stack where you would have fine-grained services and coarse-grained services, and they would sort of connect together like Lego blocks to get stuff done. Well, I bring this up because at the Kubernetes conference, almost every single company there was either doing observability or security or some combination of the two. And that's because Kubernetes as a way to run your applications in in the cloud or in a hybrid multi-cloud environment is a pretty darn complex thing. And so because of that, you have this whole ecosystem that's now built around security and around observability, what's actually happening and then security is all your protocols for how to protect your systems, you know, whether that's encryption or detection of outliers, detection of, uh, of people doing bad things on your network, for example. 
a lot of this does revolve around the network. And uh, what do you do about that? So that's what our folks are going to talk about today. So first, let's bring in Andy Stone at Pure Storage. You've got this whole background as a CISO for some pretty big organizations. So you kind of learned the ropes years ago. What are your thoughts on where things stand right now? Are we more secure than we were last year, less secure? Is it always changing? What do you think? You know, I, I think, Eric, it's it's always changing. You know, the it's an evolution, as we were kind of talking about beforehand, a race almost between the attackers and the guys trying to prevent the attacks on the security side. And, you know, it, it's a daily leapfrog, it seems, where you have new vulnerabilities coming out constantly with new attackers and new attack vectors. Uh, and then you have the, the security teams on the other side trying to race to patch those vulnerabilities and, and to ensure that their systems are robust uh, and able to defend against them. Yeah. And when you talk about patching vulnerabilities, that's a great uh, topic just to dive into a bit. W- how much has that changed? Like in this whole world of CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous development, which is a much different world from the old waterfall development days that we lived through, you, you, you get patches every day sometimes, every other day. The, the pace seems to have really increased, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the pace is is constant. You constantly have new vulnerabilities showing up, so new patches coming out to address those. Um, you know, in terms of the overall landscape, you have uh, a lot of companies that are kind of focused on the whole inventory view of, of the world, right? So as we've evolved into more of this um, distributed computing environment, you know, Kubernetes and, and um, all the lightweight applications that are out there, it really becomes a lot harder task to understand everything that's running in your environment. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for development teams to go out to Amazon, put down a credit card and get access and just start building new tools, new applications that you may or may not even know about uh, as a security professional. Um, you, know, you have to rely on some of the tools to help you get insights and visibility into your environment. Mm-hmm. And you know where you can do that, of course, you have a chance of patching. Where you can't, you don't. And it's it's those areas where you don't know something exists that leaves the blind spots and really creates vulnerabilities for your environment. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, we watched actually as, uh, and I love watching the terms, right, DevOps really changed yeah. the world of business and, and for the better, in my opinion. I think it, it really helped to solve what had been a very intractable problem of the business IT divide, right, where all of a sudden you have developers working right with the business to solve problems that are either facing your customers through the web or suppliers or whatever the case may be, but just collaborating on the front end to, to crank out new functionality to get the business humming. Now we were a little bit behind on the documentation side of things. And so, you know, maybe they solved problems and didn't really document how they solved the problem. So that was a bit of an issue, but now we have DevSecOps is, is a common term, which in the second is security, right? So if you think about how we're changing the production line of code that comes down from the business and gets deployed, well, that obviously is going to change the security profile because now you're you're kind of looking for the at the handoffs basically from you know from source to target, if you will. How are we closing that down? The data, the information systems. I mean, that was it the target hack where it came through the HVAC or something? Yeah. You're just like, well, it came through the HVAC. I mean, what? Can you explain yeah. that for our audience so they understand what the heck just happened there? Well, yeah, I mean, so when, you know, the 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 adversaries are looking for any way that they can get into an envir- a customer's environment, right? So they're scanning uh, a whole host of, of elements that uh, an organization may have, 
all their IoT devices. And the HVAC in this case was just one, right? But it was an unpatched environment. Weak credentials allowed the, the attackers to get in, get initial access to the environment. And from there, they were able to move laterally throughout. So because the HVAC system is connected to the overall network, they were able to move between hosts and, and really, you know, identify other vulnerabilities and get broader access, right? So, I mean, the, it's a constant problem that we're facing. And people don't think about this, but these IoT systems, they don't just exist in, in corporate environments. They exist in your house. I mean, your refrigerators, your TVs, That's your right. you know, everything, HVAC systems, they're all connected nowadays. And so those vulnerabilities exist everywhere, and you have to be relentless on how you're patching them. From an enterprise perspective or corporate perspective, of course, you know, your security teams have to focus on patch management. What I'm telling folks is you know, they really need to be in a place where they can apply patches for critical vulnerabilities in a day, high vulnerabilities in a couple of days, a few days, mediums in a, a week or two, and lows in a month. And wow. if, you know, if you're not that good, you really need to focus on getting that good. Because these threat actors, they act fast. Hmm. Well, and they can also uh, they can also take their time too, right? One of the yeah. topics we've discussed in the past is how the 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 hacker industry does have different groups. There are people who specialize in penetration. There are people who specialize in exploitation. And so, someone will penetrate your environment and then sell that access to someone else, yeah. who then comes in the next week or the week after and starts looking at how to exploit that. And you know, and the the overall awareness that I've gathered over the years is that this storyline, the narrative around the lone hacker with the hoodie, for some reason, they always have a hoodie. is just nonsense. It's not, I mean, there may be some guys like that, but that's not the real problem, right, Andy? No, there are groups now. So, you know, ransomware as the prime example, one that, that we talk a lot about and trying to help our customers be protected against, um, you know, Ransomware threat actor groups um, really are more business people at this point. They're not even the, the hackers in the hoodies. <laughs> to your point, they're going out to the dark web. They're yeah. renting their ransomware as a service infrastructure for about 149 bucks a month. They're going to an initial access broker who has those credentials that you talked about, buying them for pennies on the dollar for the organization they want to exploit. So they're not even really having to do any work. You know, They're going and buying these tools, renting the tools. They even go back to the, the as-a-service providers, and they can split their, their take with them, like a 40-60 split. And those organizations will actually do everything from negotiations to, to payment collection from the, the targeted organization. So really, the, the guys in the hoodies, to your point, don't exist. They're now bigger groups, and those groups don't even have to do much but collect cash. That's uh, that's a great way to put it. Uh, it's very concise. I'll throw it over to Angel Rivera yeah. from Circle CI to comment on that. It, the industry is very refined these days, and so the good guys, the white hats, have to up their game. What do you think? Uh, well, so, I mean, the white hats are struggling, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, <laughs> there's more of the uh, uh, the folks that, uh, that uh, Andy had mentioned. I mean, I, I know of stories of folks that are actually not only are they, uh, you know, benefiting from what Andy was saying, selling access and their services, they're actually making money from folks who are contracting them to do their work. So, so for instance, uh, well, I think it was a, I don't want to say the company, but 
a big telco company had an employee that was basically he, he was getting paid so much he hired like three people from different countries i don't quite remember which ones but you know they were anyway they were doing his work for him and the reason why he got caught years later was they were using a an rsa token that was logged in from three different locations at some point somebody decided <laughs> to do a, a scan right so imagine if these three people are a part of this organizations or these dark web organizations right you're paying them to essentially hack you right you're giving them access to or your employees were doing that so so that's why i mean the, the, what I mean by the white hats are struggling, right? Like <laughs> you're, you're already kind of, at, yeah, you're, you're in the minus already just because of these situations. Right. And these are like just some lazy guy that decided to say, well, I'll get someone, I can pay people to do this work right for me. And with unintended consequences, I'm pretty sure he wasn't uh, uh, intending for these you know, subcontractors to be doing what they did inside those networks while they were working. But like I said, <laughs> he got caught because someone decided, or maybe they turned on a new notification that's a, you know showed them, hey, uh, this RSA token is being logged into from three different countries at the same Oops. time. Oops. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, that's uh, leaving the breadcrumbs, right? Leaving the breadcrumbs right. to be able to track them down later. And I guess part of the challenge is there's so much of this stuff everywhere. And, you know, let's face it, security often winds up being uh, low on the totem pole, in, at least in the minds of senior executives. They kind of assume, all right, we'll hire the security people. They'll take care of that. Now let's get on to the rest of what we have to do. But every every security person I talk to always says you have to imbue a culture of awareness in your organization. And everyone has to realize that they have a role to play whether it's changing your passwords, simple stuff like that, or just being vigilant. I mean, phishing campaigns are everywhere. I get them. They're getting pretty clever these days with, you know, oh, your Amazon package has arrived, for example, or your Netflix account has been turned off. And, of course, I think, yay. (laughs) Well, we're we're also suffering from the industry suffering from uh, being fast, right? The expectation of, like, with my company, CircleCI, what we provide is a platform for developers to basically automate the things that they do manually. And then, you know, that gives them the speed and consistency, reliability to, to like, just kind of forget some of the manual things. Uh, and they even offload now security, right? So if you've heard of shift left, right, yes. this concept of shifting left where uh, folks like Andy used to be the ones calling all the shots before things got to production. Now the developers have these tools that, are you know automated and can just go ahead and say all right let's do a vulnerability scan on the things we're going to release and you know so hopefully hopefully <laughs> you get a, a a notification that something's wrong right it's a known problem which is another situation we, we could we could get into but but at the end of the day um we're expected to you know ship faster right it's pretty much and we're doing it uh, big organizations are doing it thousands of times a day versus back in the day, maybe 10 years ago, we were doing it, you know, once a month in, in, in a form of CD, right. Or some, you know, up patch that came across, uh, you know, like I said, manually or, or, or whatever, right. Like we're, we've gotten to the point where everything is fast, fast, fast. Uh, but 
we don't really, I, I don't think er, uh, developers and, uh, you know, entrepreneurs want to build insecure software, right? Nobody's, nobody wants that liability, but it's happening because we're at the point where everything is expected to be released so fast that mm. we're missing things, right? You, you're just not going to know what you don't know uh, until it's too late. Well, that was kind of my point about bringing Kubernetes into this because it is a pretty complex system. And so the the more complexity you have, the more opportunity to sneak in somewhere and not be seen is kind of how I view it. And if you look at some of these technologies, and there's great stuff. Like I looked at Stardog. I was watching uh, a demo of, of what they, those folks are doing. And it's amazing how quickly you can pull all these little bits, these little data streams from different systems, but then still some smart person has to look at it all and figure out, and go, oh, okay, this is what happened. That node went down or this other thing happened. But you know, the complexity at first will help the white hats and over time helps the black hats. What do you think? I'll throw it over to you, uh, Angel. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I know Kubernetes. <laughs> I know it well. And Kubernetes... Uh, again, is one of those systems where uh, the industry is influenced by big companies such as Google, who you know produce that. And I don't know if you remember, if you all remember, a couple years ago, where uh, prior to the Kubernetes boom and the distributed systems boom period, uh, there was this phrase going around called uh, that was uh, Google for everyone, right? Uh, and that was when Google had built this file system that was distributed across multiple uh, data centers. So, so essentially, pieces. Let's say, it, let's take an email for example. Some of your message would be in uh, Germany. Some of it would be in, you know, bits of it would be in the U.S. and then maybe in Brazil, whatever. In some data centers. But the whole point was, as a, as a you know, separate like that, no one could get your information until Google brought it together for you. Uh, yeah, and that's just, uh, yeah, <laughs> GDPR is not very friendly with that uh, approach, I wouldn't imagine. But we'll pick this up after the break, folks. Don't touch that dial. You are listening to DM Radio. Your money faster. That's just one promise of modern fintech innovator Topalti. Transform the way your finance team works. Topalti delivers smart payables that elevate modern business. They bring scale, efficiency, and focus to your business through fully automated end-to-end solutions. Topalti is the preferred payables automation solution for more than 2,000 of the world's fastest-growing companies. Find out more at topalti.com. That's T-I-P-A-L-T-I.com. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, we're talking all things security with a couple of real experts here, Andy Stone from Pure Storage and uh, Angel Rivera from Circle CI, both the industry veterans. And Andy, you want to get into this whole issue around deduplication. This is a big challenge for organizations, duplicate data. Uh, can cause problems, certainly for marketing, for production, for all kinds of different things. And uh, you guys do some pretty special work in that space. Explain to us how Pure Storage tackles the whole deduplication challenge. Yeah, uh, thanks, Eric. Yeah, so, you know, the way deduplication works with Pure is, you know, we use a, a metadata uh, storage layer, basically, to store data. And 
Based on that, we're able to go down to a very small 4K uh, byte level in when we when it comes down to the deduplication process on our storage arrays. So you know, we're able to get very small chunks and identify duplicative you know data elements throughout and basically help reduce that storage for our customers. Yeah, and that's that's not a small deal. I've heard no. stats that. You know, every piece of information on average winds up in eight separate databases in, in some organizations. And for large companies, that doesn't surprise me because you pull it into CRM systems, you pull it into delivery systems, you pull it into sales automation systems or whatever. And in the grand in the new world, we're doing things different ways, but there is a very long tail to legacy systems, right? I mean, you've got some pretty old production systems running in, in some of these companies that, you know, probably haven't been... Uh, addressed or sunsetted. I often joke that's uh, one of the enterprise fairy tales is sunsetting systems, right? It's very difficult to do. So that, that deduplication, and it's interesting from a, so from a storage perspective, you as a vendor, as a service provider can come in and help companies solve this problem because otherwise, how would you even do it? I mean, you know, yeah. there are technologies for scanning, there are data catalogs, there are all these different tools you can bring to the table but when push comes to shove, you either have it persisted somewhere or you don't. And so that gives you a pretty interesting and powerful uh, perspective on the challenge, right? Yeah, I mean, doing it on the back end, we can help reduce the, the data footprint from you know anywhere from four to five to one is the general average, I would say. But some workloads you can get, like, like VMs, for instance, you could get up to 50 to one data reduction. Wow. So if you have a lot of duplicative environments, we can save a ton on the storage side and really it helps improve performance as well. So, you know, a lot that we can do in that front nowadays. Yeah. And let's, there's a very powerful uh, other topic we can dive into here, which is right up your alley, I'm sure, which is hot storage versus cold storage. Now I've heard companies talk about this for 15 years. I'm sure it's getting better every day, but you were kind of hinting at that. And this could be part of a data life cycle strategy for organizations because you can come in and take a look number one at the data landscape and figure out okay what do you have going on here where is it moving where do you need hot hot storage versus cold and also solve that deduplication problem where you really start to improve performance because when you figure out which data needs to be hot and you solve that problem boy that makes people happy all across the board and on the cold side, you still need it sometimes, somewhere, but put that into into deep storage, which is very inexpensive. So it's you know it 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 seems like an obvious thing to want to do, but it's actually very complex unless you have a portfolio of technologies to get it done, right? That yeah, it also depends on how you actually want to use the data longer term, right? So if it's data you're not going to use, putting it out in a glacier or something, freezing it is is probably not a big deal. But it's also a reason that we developed uh, a product called Cloud Block Store, um, which is basically one of our storage arrays that runs natively in AWS or Azure. So we actually have pure storage arrays that, you know, using our code base, our purity code base, we've built native storage arrays in both those environments, leveraging our technology for our customer base. And, and it's really important because, you know, we were talking about Kubernetes before. Where you're looking at building an application because we have the same code base on both sides, you now have the same API set. So you can write an application once and you could deliver it and run it in, in any environment. So you could write the application in AWS and bring it back on premise to run without having wow. to refactor it or vice versa. 
Wow. And even go between clouds. So that, you know, there's a lot of benefit. Plus we're now able to deliver features that you don't get out of cloud-based storage, like data deduplication, compression, snapshots, uh, safe mode, which is our security feature that helps protect against ransomware. Like, so, I mean, we deliver a lot of features from that perspective up in cloud native environments as well nowadays, which is, you know, when you, when you start talking about the difference between storage tiers, that's really, really important, especially as customers start to think about how they're going to leverage the cloud long term. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. I mean, what, uh, what Andy is trying to, to describe here is a mechanism by which you can future proof your environments. And that's a big deal. Because no one likes to rip and replace. I can tell you, rip and replace is a very painful process. It almost never goes well, or it certainly never goes as planned and winds up causing a lot of trouble. And, and maybe, Angel, I'll bring you back in because you know Kubernetes. Uh, if you could explain to our audience how Kubernetes solves the OS challenge, because I think that was Google's vision, right, is, is they recognize, look, you're going to have all these different environments. We want some way to communicate with whatever the environment is, the iOS, the you know, Windows, or whatever the case may be. And so it kind of abstracted away the need to write for this environment or for that environment. But could you explain to us, including myself, how that actually yeah. works? Yeah, so 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 the, the main goal for Kubernetes is essentially to uh, be a a platform for platforms, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? So, so uh, the analogy of you know it's maybe the operating system for cloud native, um, you know, might be a little bit appropriate. But at the end of the day, yeah. So, so, so the Kubernetes uh, <laughs> kind of uh, not mystery, but uh, the goal is again to to create a platform for platforms, meaning. Um, you know, systems were basically not efficient the way we were running them uh, with, let's say, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping here with, uh, slipping here with uh, the terms, uh, hypervisors, hypervisors. So, you know, even though that was a really innovative um, approach and architecture compared to uh, the op- the option was uh, the previous option was just hey we're standing up bare metal right <laughs> on top of bare metal on top of bare metal and then storage arrays on top of storage arrays on top of storage arrays to support that uh, where Kubernetes now is kind of taking it to the next level where um, the it's basically uh, taking technology that's already been uh, around for ages uh, like C groups and all that good stuff mm-hmm. right and Docker has. Uh, that's the beauty of Docker was it, it became a wrapper for that stuff, an easy abstraction that people could actually leverage and package mm-hmm. up applications without mm-hmm. having to have uh, multiple uh, kernels running in a hypervisor, right? Now with Docker, if you look at the container, the way it works is it's a shared environment, right? So the, the, there's only one kernel and that system, uh, which is operating on a node, can then just you know be sh- be shared with multiple applications running in different containers if that makes sense so kubernetes mm-hmm. is just an orchestrator of all of that goodness right uh and and lets you deploy and execute and run your platforms in that manner uh, compared to the hypervisor where you had to have layers and layers and layers right so imagine you still have a lot of resources being used like memory and compute just to manage the underlying hypervisor, right? right. Where now is these right. containers are all sharing that same kernel 
And that's where Kubernetes is basically there. Uh, and you, 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 you probably heard the, the term, um, treat your, or the phrase, treat your, uh, your containers like cattle, right? You, you should be able to, they're, they're stateless. They should be stateless. They should be, uh, immutable. And you can basically shoot them in the head and they'll be <laughs> respawn, right? On their own. So that's kind of like where Kubernetes is, is, is the scheduler, the orchestrator and, and yeah. That's but the, the, with that complexity though, or the, with that comes a lot of complexity, right? Because the underlying bits are how do we connect networks, uh, meshes, right? How do we how do we uh, provide security? That's a good, you know, like pro- that's a big problem within Kubernetes is how do you secure this thing? Uh, you know, these things that are working uh, in unison on a cluster. Uh, how do you? How do you do that? It's not an easy task, right? And out the box, as as we all know, with open source projects, uh, security kind of takes a, unfortunately, takes a backseat because the products are still being developed and they don't, you know, as they're adding new features, they're not really thinking about how to secure them yet, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> does that make sense? It, it uh, does. And, you know, I'll throw this yeah. over to Andy, maybe. I think one of the real challenges with security is that any protocol you put in place is going to slow something down or annoy someone, whether that's credentials and just logging in. I mean, just going to do your actual login, changing the password. I mean, everyone has password issues these days. What can be done about that? I mean, I I think about my darn phone, the Samsung phone always goes into lock and wants me to un unlock it as I'm driving, trying to use the maps and it goes off and I don't want to be trying to unlock my phone while I'm driving to use the darn map. And I'm thinking, guys, can't you figure out that I'm with my phone and have been with my phone and, you know, geolocation, all this stuff. Isn't there some way to know that it's me? And they say, oh, yes, if you just look at it, it'll see you. Okay. It doesn't work very well. But how do you get around the 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 annoyance hurdle of security protocols? Yeah, I- Eric, I'm not sure that you do, ultimately. I think that you know, there are things that we can do to reduce friction. Right. In some cases, you want friction. In some, in some cases, it's intentional, right? You mm-hmm. want to slow things down. You want to get extra validation, that sort of thing. But, you know, more and more, you look at what organizations are doing, like with your phone, you know, Apple and, and, and Google. They both integrated a, an option where you can now unlock with your watch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, computers, anyway, right? So I can unlock my laptop with just being near it, having my watch on, right? I don't even have to you know, touch it anymore. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of that come into mobile devices as well. So, you know, Apple's testing some stuff around NFC and, you know, additional tokens as, uh, for authentication. Um, mm-hmm. But, you, you know, I, I don't think that you get around everything in terms of the friction. I think that at some points you want to have friction in the system, Um you know, at other points, you want them to be more frictionless. But, you know, over time, I think authentication continues to get better. Authorization continues to get better. Uh, and, you know, those places where we want a more friction-free environment, we can probably start to develop toward it. But, um, you know, I think we need to be cautious in that that effort as well because, you know, you yeah. need to make well-informed and, and educated decisions where you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're always going to need people. Right. I'll throw this over to Angel. I mean, we have AI, ML for classifying, for helping us identify which needles in the haystack to focus on. But you're always going to need people to look at these systems, to be watching this stuff on a regular basis. Right. It's never going to be fully automated ever. I don't think. Right, Angel? I mean, 
why would you want it to be right? Like at the end of the day, that 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 to me is a definition of insanity. <laughs> you know, like you're gonna let the computers, you know, dictate things. So yeah, there definitely a a balance needs to be struck. Uh, you know, and and the humans need to have the upper hand, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, at that point, uh, but but you know, look. I know I worked in federal government for many, many years. I know for a fact that there are vulnerable systems operating right now and on critical systems. And these organizations are essentially going, Hey, we do assessments. We know these things exist, but we're willing to take the risk, right? So they set risk levels and Andy could probably talk to this way better than I can. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a, accepting a certain level of risk of, of, of this system that is a real danger. Uh, and obviously there's other mitigation, right. Per, on, on the perimeter of these applications. So hopefully those things are working. They're the gatekeepers to this vulnerable app, right. That's being uh, utilized by these organizations. So, you know, there's a lot of layers to to security that are, you know, fictional in my mind. But right. the perception is, wow, you know, these three-letter agencies or whatever, they, they got to be secure, right? Like, they're the best. We're, you know, we're the USA. We got the, <laughs> the resources and the brain power, and we do. But the reality is that's not how things work, right? Well, right. I mean, it's, it's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. it is, especially when money is on the line, right? I mean, there were That's stories right. coming out of California of gobsmacking amounts of money being siphoned off for COVID relief and winding up in places like Africa and then all over the world. So, you know, to your point, any system that you expose to the interwebs is going to be exposed to good guys and bad guys across the board. And, uh, you know, you need this this set of policies. And I think we'll pick this up in the next segment uh with andy because uh angel brings up a really good point that what you want to have are these uh these protocols these policies defined have certain metrics thresholds you know when it reaches this level change to this tactic change to that tactic this kind of thing it's important because again it's always changing and uh, it's really a bit bewildering to think about how you can effectively protect your assets, your information, whether it's at rest, whether it's in motion. You know, there are different strategies for both of those. But uh, you know, when people get laid off, your whole policy of how you actually manage people being removed from their roles, however dynamic that is, is going to help determine how effective you are at solving that particular problem as thousands of people get laid off from big tech companies. We'll be right back, though. You're listening to Dan Radio. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe 25000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is the perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need 25000 50000 or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. 800-627-6493. 800-627-6493. 
800-627-6493. That's 800-627-6493. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio. What a fascinating show, talking to Andy Stone from Pure Storage and Andrew, I'm sorry, Angel Rivera from Circle CI. And we wanted to talk about backups. Backups are so much fun. I know everyone in the world loves to do backups, and they especially love, like, backing up your personal computer and then waiting 18 hours as you restore the backup if you really want to do all that. I mean, my version is... Uh, I'm like the Italian race car driver. What's behind us is gone. Just like look forward. Don't worry about it. But I'm a small company, so I can do that. Uh, Andy, I'll throw it over to you. You mentioned resiliency and this concept of snapshots as opposed to full backups. What do you mean by all that, and why does it matter? Yeah, I, I think nowadays, Eric, a lot of, of what we're talking about with customers is building this concept of a resiliency architecture. And the idea is you want tiers of recoverability throughout right? For your critical applications, especially. So really focusing in on leveraging snapshots. So like where you're running on Pure, for instance, uh, our snapshot technology, we use metadata pointers so we can take those snapshots instantly, which Mm. also gives us the ability to recover instantly when an event occurs. But we're able to now build out this tiered recovery environment, leveraging the snapshots that gives you much higher speed recoverability when an incident or uh, of some type occurs. Now, I'm not saying you completely get rid of backup. I think backup still serves a purpose in that uh, it, it's critical for long-term retention and, and longer-term recovery of applications that don't make sense to snapshot. And you know that's a, a longer-term discussion. But you know the idea here is building a tiered resiliency architecture, leverage those snapshots where you can, because the snapshots will get your business back up and running way faster than pulling off a backup. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And uh, folks, look these guys up online, Pure Storage. I mentioned uh, before the call when we were chatting with these gentlemen, I've always been impressed by their consultative approach. And I got to tell you, if you every company, every mid to large company, mid-sized to large, must have an information strategy. Like I promise you must have an information strategy, even a core group of people who focus on that. And uh, these guys can help solve a lot of the problems that you have, or at least give you a roadmap for how to solve those problems. Because it's the kind of thing where if you don't know where all the tendrils go, you're never going to be able to track them all down, which means you'll never be able to do security, period. If you don't know the endpoints, if you don't know where you could get attacked, well, you're not going to do a very good job of preventing attacks because you don't even know what's going on out there. I'll throw it over to, to Angel to comment on and of course, you folks are, are focused on this continuous integration, continuous delivery, which is this much better way of building applications. But kind of to your point earlier, it's so fast. The demand is to get to move so quickly. How do you how do you ensure that the SEC gets included in the DevSecOps? What do you think, Angel? Yeah, so so yeah, that's that that's the struggle, right? Like teams are now kind of a, a, a tasked with or developers, I should say, are t- now tasked with that uh, capability and responsibility of, uh, you know, ensuring that within this automation that we're using, Circle uh, CI and a pipeline, right, a continuous delivery pipeline, uh, 
it just it's designed to catch things before they even get to like maybe even the staging environment. Right? So if you're if you follow uh, software development practices, usually you're doing an R and D kind of phase, right? Cycle mm-hmm. where you're just developing features. It's not you know it's not pretty. It's just hey, does this thing uh, work? based on some requirements, right? And then as time goes on, uh, you know, we start evolving, iterating, and then the polish starts getting applied to it. And then you have a product uh, that can then be, you know, pushed to the next step in your SDLC. Uh, But when you can start, you know, checking things for vulnerabilities as early as possible, you now have what I guess you alluded to, or or you mentioned earlier was DevSecOps, right? So like everybody Mm -hmm. wants to throw that in there. And that's what kind of that means is uh, you're shifting those responsibilities, not no longer down the pipeline, right? Right. Like at the end of the pipeline, the, the, usually the security teams will bless a artifact that then gets deployed to production. Now that's occurring. uh, Well, that's not occurring there. The the systems are doing this, you know, as a matter of fact, the the sanity checks early on, uh, there still may be, depending on the, the type of uh, system, the data, you know, classification of data that it's dealing with, uh, there may be some mandatory checks later down the pipe. But at the end of the day, we're trying to, you know, move things further into the development process mm-hmm. early on to catch it and and try to mitigate it there versus uh, later on down the road, we're going, oh, wow. Like, yeah, we had this here. It's like SolarWinds, right? For instance, <laughs> they had that thing in there forever. They didn't know. But Mm -hmm. the rest of the world knew, and uh, I should say the rest of the open source community knew we were using those exploits to manage boxes, right? Like after we deployed. So (laughs) (laughs) this is where like, funny, yeah, so that's the the supply chain. Right. Well, it's the the black hats and the white hats are using the same things. Exploitations can be used for good reasons or for bad. So yeah, white hats uh, are struggling. (laughs) <laughs> my hats are struggling. I think they're still hiring folks. So in a market where uh, it's getting more lean, they are still yeah. hiring. And, you know, Andy, I'll throw this one over to you. The, the ability you mentioned uh, before in this key value store, you know, where you can do this deduplication check, you can check for things, right? So you can also check for the signature of viruses or of ransomware or of these little buggers that get in there like WannaCry or all the ones that we've seen over the last several years, you can find those things. And, and it's very important to have that kind of technology to do the scans, right? I mean, the, the challenge with the uh, security software is always that it would throw other stuff off, right? At least in the PC world, I know. You'd like turn on your, your virus software and all of a sudden stuff starts breaking because it's running in the background. I mean, we're, well, that's like 10 years ago now. So we've kind of moved on beyond that. But it does, of course, help to have the scanning capacity and to know and, and have the registry of, of malware, the registry of ransomware footprints, right? Is that something you guys can help with as well? So, you know, interestingly, you, you can't really scan with block storage. We've, um, we've tried. We've looked, um, tried to partner with a number of organizations to get that capability. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just the way that it works in general, it's not something that, that you can do today. Um, now on the file side, absolutely, you know, so where you're, you're looking at unstructured data, um, you can absolutely do scans on files. Now, what I'll tell you is with modern ransomware, because it runs in memory, you can't effectively detect it before an attack's actually launched. So you're not going to find a ransomware payload just running in most of the time, unless you stumble into it, just running in your environment, uh, or sitting in wait. 
you're going to have to wait almost until you see encrypted uh, you know, traffic before you can actually respond to it. And wow. that's why, you know, one of the, what, what we have done, uh, you know, to, to help with some of this is um, like pure, we created a, a feature called safe mode and safe mode is these special snapshots that are, I call them super immutable snapshots that in essence require a, a third uh, an out-of-band support process to be invoked in order to delete data from our arrays. So even mm-hmm. if you're an admin on our arrays, you can't actually delete the data unless you go through support. And that means the same thing for bad processes. So a bad process that might get uh, admin credentials can't delete data from an array. So while we can't necessarily scan for you know, in, a, a, a malware that's, that may be running, we can do things to protect the data so that you can recover very quickly, especially when you get back into that that you know resiliency architecture we talked about. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I, I was not aware of that. So the new ransomware is running in memory. I mean, that, you know, these guys are getting clever. White hats are struggling, wow. is how Angel would put it. Right? The uh, the the struggle is real. Right. Well, we got about uh, angels uh, hit the nail on the head on that one for sure. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's oh, a constant chunk. You know, the other interesting thing about ransomware that the you know these people that that you're buying the the malware from. So you know the the brokers that ha- actually develop the code. I mean, they're using AI and, and ML to constantly you know morph the codes, polymorphic at this point. So it can yeah, continually right. morph in an environment, and so it makes it again doubly hard to even try to detect. Yep. So that, that's why, you know, when I talk to customers and, and I don't I, I would never disparage my brethren in the security space. But, you know, anybody that's coming to you today saying we can detect ransomware before it you know attacks your environment is probably not being, you know, 100 percent honest. With I, I'll, I'll do it for you, Andy. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's it's my my position is always been come from a place of, you know, you've already you already have the enemy inside uh the 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 biggest or the the most effective thing you can do is understand uh how to identify them right uh detect it the activity and then isolate it and hopefully you can do it without them knowing you're doing it and then watch them see what's happened right? well a lot right. of it comes back to analytics so i think analytics. You, you, and er- yep. you and eric were touching on this before but like you know what i one of the things i was thinking was you know, where you have security analytics in place to try to uh, educate your your threat hunters, right? You run into a lot of problems traditionally because with analytics tools, so like a Splunk or an Elastic, on most storage systems, you can either ingest data fast or you can correlate data fast, but you can't right. do both. That's and you right. need to be able to do both, right? And, and so we've put a lot of focus and emphasis on you know, how can you start to unlock those gates? Okay, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment on a fantastic show here today, talking to Andy Stone from Pure Storage and Angel Rivera from Circle CI. And uh, Andy, you were on a, on a roll right there at the end of that last segment, making a really, really good point, which is in the analytics world, typically you can either ingest at great scale or you can analyze, infer, if you will, at some scale. But doing both simultaneously is a very difficult thing to do. Right. So you have to compartmentalize it or just take some other approach and uh, so just if you would continue making that that point and, and explain why it's important. Yeah, sure. It, you know, it's important because, you know, as you're ingesting, you want to be able to identify the threats in as close to real time as possible. But you need to be able to correlate across three areas, the network, the endpoint and the end user. 
right? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, security organizations are very focused on leveraging a single tool to try to accomplish that task. And that's not effective. You need to go find the tools that are best in breed for, for those specific uses. And again, three areas, network, endpoint, and end user. I like to emphasize that because where you can correlate across those three, you can give your cyber threat hunters a sniper scope. So instead, mm -hmm. instead of saying, hey, go search that field over there for, for something bad, you can say, go look right there for this malicious activity. That's that's very interesting too, and you're you're reminding me of, of basic stuff like runtime, right? I mean, you've got a runtime that's doing. You know, are we scanning for? Is there any trouble? Is every machine on right now? Which machine isn't on? And you know, this also gets back to Kubernetes and and how containerization orchestrates functionality in organizations. And again, so I'll throw it over to to Angel. On the front end, in the early days of Kubernetes being rolled out, it's good for the white hats. As time goes by, you know, the black hats get smarter about things. But kind of back to uh, Andy's point here a moment ago, there are very clever ways that you can try to triangulate what's really happening. And you can kind of have stuff running on the edge, basically. You can, I mean, there are all kinds of ways you could do things these days. But to, to triangulate that, the endpoint, the user, and the network traffic, right? What's actually happening now? What's different from before? And, and there's always this question of what's the window of time that I'm watching? Is it 10 seconds? Is it a minute? Is it two minutes? And the bottom line is you play around with that stuff and you learn and you see. And ideally, you learn from other people. And, you know, there's the whole uh, shared responsibility with the big cloud providers. And I know they're all working on that stuff too, but it's still on you to do that. What are your thoughts on on really how to optimize that? And I know it depends on the organization and, and uh, the size and the threat level or whatever, but uh, there are always unique ways that you can solve these problems, right, Angel? Uh, uh, there are, uh, but I can tell you a human's not going to do it, right? right? Like not not in real time. So, so. Right. Uh, these systems are systems and they're operating in, you know, at light speed <laughs> and the human brain, I don't care how great of a hacker, white hatter you are, whatever, you're not going to compete, right? With that. We're not going to compete with it, with, with uh, multi-clustered systems, right? At the end of the day, um, I think the, where the systems like AI, machine learning and all that's good, good stuff. That's where, we probably should spend a lot of time focusing on identifying patterns, right? Recognizing what that looks like, uh, or, you know, obviously an attack looks like, um, and that, that will come in different flavors, but then be uh, more interested in predictive analysis, right? Like, okay, uh, right. we know this pattern exists. So what? how many different permutations of this attack are possible, right? It's almost right. like the, uh, 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 what was it? The uh, One of the... Uh, uh, yeah, the Endgame movies, uh, Marvel, right? Uh, Doctor Strange did the whole, uh, I'm going to check how many, uh, look into the future and see how many different ways this can end. And there was only one solution, right? <laughs> Which I'm not going to spoil <laughs> the movie, but it's kind of the same That's concept, funny. right? It's the predictive analysis of of, of, of of all the information we already have and then right. figuring out like right, right, how. Right. That, that's the, for me, that's probably the only true uh way uh you know that we can 
gained some semblance of a of an equilibrium in that in that battle. <laughs> that's that's a really interesting point, and you know, I'll throw this last comment over to uh, to Andy. Maybe just get some closing thoughts from you. But I'm thinking to myself another analogy, which is self driving cars, right? And if you think of the self driving car as an analogy to the enterprise and security, well, self driving cars are getting better and better. Knock on wood at recognizing threats. And so what happens? The brakes kick in, you know, the alarms go off, et cetera. And that's really what we want from these new information systems, right? Is the self-driving car warning, ding, 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 we think there's someone in here, or just er, stop the car when you're about to run over, you know, some some poor dog in the street or something. That's the the analogy is that these systems should get smart enough and it's tracking what you're talking about, right? But it's doing it so under the covers, if you will, just constantly scanning. And what's going to happen is you won't be able to log in to your G drive or do something because there's they think there's a threat. Nope, nope. We think someone is actually sitting on top of you, sneaking in behind you, et cetera. That's the the uh the ultimate end state, right? Is where the the enterprise is kind of like a self-driving car and security, 90% of which is, is done automatically. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, that would be utopian, right? But I, I think my big fear is that, you know, somebody takes over the self-driving car and shuts it down on the, the right. 405 in LA at rush hour, right? You know, or right, drives right, it off right. a cliff. And then the hacker walks up yeah. and holds yeah. the gun up to you and says, give me your money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I think that there's got to be a balance. And I, I think, you know, Angel was kind of referring to some of that as well. It's like, you know, it's a, it, I think it's going to be a balance for some period of time. I, taking the person out of the equation, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think, you you can use AI and ML for a lot of good things, but I don't think it's end to end at this point, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a, a perfect solution for that. So somewhere the person has to get inserted to do a validation of nothing else. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, if you look at like AppSec, right? Code scanning tools, they've been around for a long time. You still have to have a person involved to go back and do validation on things that it comes up with, right? So, yeah. and remediate. Yeah, real look, final thought from you, Angel. We're all going to have jobs for a while now. I think is the uh, <laughs> yeah. Is the take maybe not the white maybe maybe not the white hats, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, the, the the yeah, you know, security threats are real, and uh, there is no uh, one solution. Uh, there is no one vendor that has solved these issues, right? Uh, I think uh, what Adam said is right. Is and I think this is going to be a theme in, in moving forward in, in the future, probably the next decade, is best in breed tooling, no more of this all in oneing, right? Like that that right. I think those days are coming closer to an end than than most people and vendors would like. But at the end of the day, yeah, we're gonna to have to start composing our tool chains versus yeah. buying, you know, this all in one right. stuff. Well, and there That's it is what again. I'm going to leave it. Yeah, I just yeah. told my sales guy this morning, composability, learn that term, composability, composable CDP, composable ERP, composable security. The future is composable, yeah. folks. What a wonderful show today. Look at these guys up online. You've been listening to DM Radio.